0: You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Making Fun of Marketing podcast, where we take a deeper look into the things B2B marketers and sales teams do that seem ridiculous, but we still end up doing them anyway. And many things that we do that we just don't even realize are crazy in the first place and we're still doing them anyway. So we have the perfect guest with us today, Chris Walker, CEO and founder of Refine Labs, who's actually my favorite thought leader when it comes to helping us evolve our best practices and becoming better demand generation, demand creation marketers. So welcome, Chris.
0: Scott, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the
1: show and let's do it. Awesome. So We're going to actually flip things around and start with our punchline segment. So I'm going to give you a line and then you go ahead and finish it. All right. First one, MQLs are? Poorly, poorly defined. Yep. If you said awesome, we'd just end (laughs) the broadcast right here. (laughs) SDRs are?
0: The wrong type of person to sell to an executive and build trust.
1: Mm. Yep. Yep. I'm now doubting X types of campaigns because everything on paid search, except for
0: branded search, because the channel gets more expensive and conversion rates continue to go down. And when you measure it against pipeline and revenue instead of MQLs,
1: oftentimes it doesn't make sense to even buy non-branded terms. There you go. You want to own that first page and a lot of times you get bidded against. So yeah, definitely agree with you there. During my LinkedIn videos on LinkedIn, I'm looking at what?
0: (laughs) A teleprompter with a screen of typically hundreds of people attending a live Zoom event.
1: Awesome. That's fantastic. That's really good. And a lot of those ideas you talk to are pretty complicated. So that makes sense. All right. So where I want to start is the whole MQL thing. That's why I had that as the first punchline line. I agree ever since twenty. I don't know, I guess 2010-ish, my teams, whichever company I've been a part of, have tried to perfect this lead scoring model. And eventually the SDRs just get mad at it because the scoring is inaccurate on a handful of leads. And then it deteriorates over time. And all this months of work on the front end get blown up. So what is a better way to maybe measure what you're driving to come into the pipeline?
0: So... Over time, the definition of an MQL has continued to expand and get less strict in pursuit of volume and scale in the age of predictable revenue, where like SDRs get leads and book meetings for sales reps in the late 2000s. It was just, we needed someone's contact information and as of like you know, five, seven years ago, that assumption is no longer true. We have contact databases like ZoomInfo and the millions of other ones that provide high quality contact information. We don't need someone to download a piece of gated content or another reason to get that information in order for our sales team to go outbound. So, and then if you look at the sales performance metrics underneath it, for a majority of these MQL sources, the sales productivity and sales velocity are absolutely terrible. And if looked at that way, it would indicate that we should stop doing this. This is a waste of our sales team's time, which is our most expensive, important resource. And so the solution is to either redefine the MQL or get rid of the MQL, however you want to look at it. Our belief here is that the only thing that should be passed to sales from marketing is a ICP qualified buyer that says, hey, I want to talk to your sales team about buying. And so in that case, if they did that, like for us, for instance, if they come to our forum and say, hey, I want to talk to your sales team about working together, then it, auto- it checks that their ICP qualified at an, at an account, and then it gives them a calendar to book with the appropriate rep, and then we automatically get the meeting booked, and it goes directly to a sales rep, not through an SDR for band, and we can automatically consider that an SQL instead, and then we just don't have an MQL at our company. And that aligned the the idea that the definition of MQL and SQL become the same would be a breakthrough moment for a lot of revenue teams, because it's a place where there's a significant amount of friction for no reason than trying to divide metrics between the sales and marketing team when we should be looking at it as a revenue team.
1: Yeah, yeah. There was a lot there. Three things that I want to call out. The first one is on the definition of the MQL. In my last role, I started to do this practice and get your take on it, where if there was a lead that came inbound, whether where it was from uh, typically a source that we weren't grabbing from Zoom Info, so we didn't have all that an- information up front, we'd append it, we'd look to see if it was the right title level, the right company, firmographics, and then we would score it on whether or not it would be pulled into our other marketing efforts that had more pay associated to it. If they hit multiple pages on the website and had at least two engagements with other campaigns. And then we would go ahead and decide to spend money on it. And then that was just literally four checkboxes, person, company, website, engagement. And then that was kind of like an evergreen metric that just stayed because we knew there was some awareness of us and they were the right person. What's your take on modifying it to be something Mm -hmm. like that? I believe that's basically a homegrown account
0: intent driven outbound model. Yeah. So yep. yeah, whether you get it through Bambora or an ABM platform, or you build something yourself based on website de-anonymization and matching against an ICP, and then trying to measure some level of quote-unquote account engagement, I would say that that's a, it's a similar function, It's acts similarly
1: to what companies do when they use a, a, a intent data from accounts. Yeah. And I noticed that in running LinkedIn campaigns again now versus when I was spending million plus dollars on it years ago, there's a new filter that has the intent signal of they've looked at content on this topic, which I kind of feel at first glance is a little bit more reliable because it's not the black box intent on, oh, I put this topic and it scans the internet for who traffic's there. What are some other unique ways to identify that intent, such as how LinkedIn is maybe doing it more strategically?
0: I believe that for the most part, the like granularity of intent data is often not helpful, whether it's a black box or things like that. I think that it's like, it's over engineered. Mm -hmm. And so like we've, and additionally, I believe that the main use case for intent data is to trigger one-to-one or sales to account level outbound actions, not necessarily like air cover marketing and advertising around it. I've done some small tests and my like my conclusion was that the intent data group and just a cold audience performed similarly in terms of performance. So didn't see a lot of reason to continue there. And then like, when you actually look at it, if you look, if you six Sense doesn't reveal what they do, but like, if you actually looked at it, a majority of the intent that's valuable is just an account visited your website. It's about as simple as that. It's like basically glorified retargeting packaged in a really complicated, like thing to make it seem a lot more complicated. And then all the white noise and the stuff that messes everything up is typically the, all the stuff that's surfacing from the web. Like, oh, there was a blog that mentioned ABM and some person at IBM visited there. We should cold call IBM now because they definitely (laughs) want to buy. But I think a lot that causes a lot of false positives and a lot of people to not, rely on intent data because in again in pursuit of scale you reduce quality whether it's an mql or you're going to call it an mqa as companies move to scale they end up decreasing quality reducing conversion rates making things very inefficient so there's a mindset shift around how we drive growth how that works which is typically like, it just doesn't work like the MQL, you know, waterfall machine that people have been sold for a long time. Yep.
1: Yep. The old Sears decisions model that we probably hung on to for far too long.
0: Which was originally published in 2006, by the way. And yeah. the world is just a <laughs> yeah, different exactly. place 17 years later, yet a lot of companies still use that core model. Yep.
1: And it doesn't help us to evolve past that when the marketing automation systems, Piggybacked on that and made it, quote unquote, scalable to drive more revenue.
0: Everything piggybacked on it. Content syndication is a massive space. The expansion of digital touchpoint attribution relies on a lot of performance marketing generally. ABM just sort of ex- like just changed the definition of an MQL from a person based MQL to an account based MQL. And so, like, the whole technology ecosystem gets built around the frameworks and things that are already accepted. Which perpetuates yeah. this more of the same over time because now you have tools and things that then pro- basically your innovation is stalled by the amount of what the technology can do. And then it takes a very special company to come in and actually teach people that you have to do it a different way, which is a far more expensive and far more challenging thing to do than sell someone something they think they already need and the uh, B2B industry needs some vendors to step up and say, we need to break the existing frameworks. I'm not building my tech based on the past.
1: Yeah. One of the reasons why I joined uh, Chronologic was because of that, because it basically takes those super high intent buyers and just automates the sending of a tailored invite based on their inbound action. And many times our customers are just placing that first call on the AE's calendar, which you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to do that, what is the role of the SDR? Because SDRs love the demo request, but to your point, they may not be the best suited or aren't the best suited in many cases to take that call because you can't, as a buyer, get those detailed questions answered when that's the only thing you want to have happen. (laughs) So what is the, how does the SDR role evolve given that dynamic?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're talking like true inbound hand raiser, obviously SDRs love this. I remember back in 2016, when we were doing this and it would take an SDR, like 300 or more calls to book a meeting with outbound and they would book 50 per, you know, one out of two calls from inbound handraisers would be a meeting and they would get paid the same. So obviously yeah. they, obviously they want more of the inbound hand raisers. The reality of the situation is that this layer for inbound is no longer necessary. It's not. We can yeah. like the idea that you need a human to qualify a customer today in this day and age with all the things that you can do is totally false you know what company yeah. they work at you can enrich all of that data you can automatically filter it you can route it to the right rep you can ask them qualifying questions in the form if you want and you can see their job title and if you sell to a company and they fit that company profile And the decision maker's title is on that submission. You don't need an SDR to run BANT. They are decision maker at that right company. They can go directly to an AE, make the process more efficient for the customer, and by design, make it also more efficient for you. And it's just an unnecessary step in the process that basically disrupts conversion rates from demo request form or contact sales form to meeting SAT. That process is terribly inefficient. It's also very manual. It's just, we're so teched out in SaaS, yeah. but all of a sudden we have this simple process that there is clear technology to optimize and we're like nope i guess we'll just you know send another email through outreach with no calendar link and go back and forth with a customer a cmo eight times before we get a fucking meeting booked and it just doesn't make any sense so you remove yeah. that you remove that resource from that process all we're focused on uh coming through the website and delivering to sales are declared intent conversions qualified account saying hey i want to buy now booked on a meeting directly with the rep. If they don't book the meeting by chance, which does happen, then it's the rep's responsibility to follow up and get the calendar invite, not an SDR. And then when you don't have the people doing that, which is, you know, some of it's hand raisers, but probably like 96% of a company's quote unquote MQLs are what we call low intent leads. People that didn't ask to talk to sales, but did some action that the company then assumes that they should go and cold call them for intent, which is typically false. So that's where a lot of the SDR time is wasted on inbound. So you don't have that anymore either because you've redefined the MQL. Then that team is focused on account intent-driven outbound to a select set of accounts that justifies having an SDR in your go-to-market model due to allowable CAC. We should not have an SDR involved in a deal that costs 10K and we should not have an SDR involved in a deal that we're gonna make arguably less than like 25K in today's day and age if you wanna have a scalable customer acquisition cost model. But if you got your top tier one accounts that pay you 150K a year, and they're gonna expand into million dollar customers over three years and sign annual deals, that can justify having a $100,000 SDR focus on 100 accounts and work those based on intent data. And so we basically need to reshape and re-resource our go-to-market strategy against tiers of accounts.
1: Yep. And the other thing it deteriorates is the CAC or cost of sale that you mentioned a minute ago, because uh, even as of last year, I, I heard inside sales leaders say, we're trying to build the biggest SDR team we can. I'm like, and just completely deteriorate how much it costs to run your sales team. I mean, that those teams get really expensive, really fast, and they don't scale indefinitely. They scale up to a very small amount based on your in high intent inbound traffic or your targeted accounts that you're trying to break into. But then at that point, you're basically just eroding your own budget at that point. I feel. Like. Yeah,
0: I mean, theoretically, the SDR function should scale based on the amount of demand that's created in the market or the assumed growth in market size. Yep. Then those resources should be only focused on ICP qualified in market accounts and you should reverse your headcount model based on how many accounts are in market at any one time against how many accounts a specific person can work in there, voila, you get your headcount model, which is 50 to 75% less of the headcount BDR headcount that companies have right now. Yeah, But the only way to get, and so there's a big savings there, but the only way to get there is to do what I said first, which is change the definition of MQL and eliminate low intent lead gen. Otherwise you do need those 40 people to call those 48,000 MQLs per year that almost never buy. So it goes hand in hand, but it, when you switch out this model in a big, like hundred million dollar company, you're pulling like six or $8 million and go to market expenses out, out the gate in like 90 days, yeah. it makes a huge impact on cost of acquisition with negligible to no Im- negative impact on pipeline and revenue production. It's just inefficient machine where the inefficiencies are clear. Yeah.
1: And contrary to common belief, growing your SDR team does not grow pipeline. (laughs) You got to reverse engineer it. Yeah, we'll get that in a minute. uh, Or engineer it the right way the first time. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to take it there just because I feel really passionate about this one. The idea that we all say the word pipeline, and there's been nobody out there that has defined what does pipeline mean. So every company is defining it differently, even if they define it as a stage in the process, like we booked the first meeting, or we had a demo or it moved to stage two in our sales process, all of those criteria are subjective and all of those criteria are not rooted in actual sales productivity or win rates or any actual metrics. And so when you do an analysis with companies, one company will say, we created hundred million in pipe last year. And another company will say, oh shit, we only created 20 million pipe. We must be bad. And then you actually look, and the company that did 100 million in pipe wins that pipe at 4.7%, which means they get $4.7 million off the 100. And the company that created 20 million in pipe wins 30% of that pipeline, and therefore wins about 6.5 million. And so the company that generates 20 million in pipe thinks that they're not doing well because other people are quote unquote generating more pipe, but they're actually being more productive. And that's a problem across all the sharing of information between companies, because you don't really know what these people are talking about. It's not like your P&L or your balance sheet where everything's defined by GAAP accounting principles. In revenue, it's like the wild, wild west out there. And so we've put forward, and even inside of your your go-to-market system, like your outbound opportunity, stage two opportunities might win at 5% and your declared intent hand raisers for like a contact sales might win at 35%. Yeah. And I've seen that difference before. And inside of a company, they look at it and they say, This pipeline is valued the same. Let's scale outbound, not knowing that they went outbound at 5% and inbound at 35%, which makes inbound 7x easier to scale. And so the discrepancies on pipeline, like basically companies went from, they were using an MQL metric, and then everyone's like, oh, MQLs are bad. Let's shift to pipeline. And then they poorly define pipeline as like meeting booked or meeting sat, and nothing further than that. They artificially inflate pipeline, and the same problem is created but now you're just doing it against a meeting booked or a meeting sat instead of an MQL, it still doesn't align to sales metrics. So we proposed a new framework that uses a sales win rate metric tracked the past six months historically, must be greater than 25% for it to be considered pipeline. Yeah. And that would immediately force major investment decision changes and major strategy changes across the company, specifically in marketing and BDRs, just simply by changing the goal. And so I think it's a really fascinating thing, if you can think about that as an executive or leader, like the teams operate, it's not like the people inside the company are bad. Oftentimes, what I find when I consult is that the people inside of the company are great. They're just operating inside of a framework that doesn't allow them to be successful. So, yeah, we really need to think about how we define and report on pipeline and what it means across the holistic go to market to make good, solid like overall decisions.
1: Yeah, one thing that I have been able to do the last couple places I've been is that it's kind of like a cover your ass moment where we won't even put it into the marketing dashboard for pipeline until it gets to like stage two or if we have to stage one, but stage one is a very clearly defined post-discovery call. You know, your goals are shared, but preferably stage two, that way that it may be lower, but your conversion rates are up and you end up doing less of the stuff that generates fluff and more of the campaigns that actually generate those quality discussions. And those metrics can then help you define where you should spend your money, especially now when budgets are tight. So along those lines, the lines get blurred between sales and marketing source. And it hasn't actually been until I joined this company that I've been able to get the company to agree to a shared number and move along the lines of, Sales helps marketing, marketing helps sales, and together we do this. No one is doing it in and of themselves. Up until this point, it's always been marketing versus sales, and it creates this rift, especially when the commissions are balanced indifferently, differently, or the sales team thinks they show more value to the company if they are working their leads versus the ones that are, quote unquote, given to them. So how important is the dynamic of a shared pipeline, if at all?
0: It's critical, but it's not enough. Mm just saying as a company, okay, sales and marketing, you guys are together. Like we created 30 million pipe last year. Now we're gonna go out and create 50, like go and figure it out. A lot of companies are doing it. It's not enough because you miss the underlying framework in order to make good decisions. And so that's the piece that's missing. And So you have over here, you got marketing using multi-touchpoint based attribution, which is built to prove ROI of easy to prove programs not to inform strategic decisions about what to do next. So they're over here trying to, to, you know, get a touch point on every single deal so they can say they influenced 100% regardless of the effectiveness. So instead, the recommendation is is to break it into demand capture and demand creation. And when you look at demand capture, recognizing that once an account is in market, there are a lot of different ways to capture them into pipeline and revenue, events, partner, Cold outbound, intent-driven outbound, declared intent conversion on your website, low intent lead gen. Those are the core six that most companies could deploy in some fashion. And then you'd be able to see where are the best places to capture buyers that are in market that convert to revenue at the highest sales velocity and the lowest cost of acquisition. And you can just go through, and it's not a sales versus marketing thing, it's how are we getting revenue? And it's, it's the team working together to say, where are we going to deploy investments that make the most sense for the highest scalability, effectiveness and efficiency for the company. And then we have another layer, which is demand creation, which needs to be measured in a different way that most companies don't do right now, which we call hybrid attribution. The first layer of this would be self-reported attribution, asking how'd you hear about us on the website. Smart companies have now brought this into sales conversation. So first call with the salesperson, they will ask, how did you hear about us? Then they'll implement tags with their call reporting system like Gong or Clary or other ones. And they'll be able to recognize when the person says, how did you hear about us? And then look at what the buyer said after that. And then automatically start to feed, you could start to write properties and do a lot of automated things. And you could repeat that motion, which is just asking customers what's working in a bunch of different ways. And over time, we'll automate that and have a big stream of primary customer research data about what's working in your marketing that you'll be able to then deploy to make strategic decisions. And some of that could be your sales leader posting on LinkedIn. And some of it could be the field events that your sales team puts on with like some assistance from marketing, but it's really a sales driven event. And all of a sudden you're starting to get that information about what's working for customers too. And then you recognize that sales and marketing work together on all three components, demand creation, demand capture, and demand conversion. Where previously it was in serial. Marketing is supposed to create the demand and get a lead. And then sales is supposed to convert the demand into revenue. And now it's a, it just has to be a much more integrated system together based on how buyers buy today.
1: Yeah. One thing that I've done that kind of helps me guide that, what do we do for strategy wise based on what the goals are? And it's like tracking the lead entrance and then seeing if they engage in other, in other forms. And did we, you know, how did we buy that lead? What was the cost per lead on that? And then did that audience continue down the path? And then what are the converting lead sources that actually converted someone and then tracking the influencing campaigns along the way? Like, is there a difference between having a direct mail somewhere in there or not? I've seen sometimes there's like a 10% difference on win rate and been able to you know align strategy based on that. When you look at different attribution metrics, How do you use those and which KPIs do you use to help define a better strategy moving forward based on what you've done historically?
0: So you break all the things that you're doing into, are we creating demand for accounts that are not in market? Are we capturing demand for in-market accounts? Are we trying to accelerate pipeline using pipeline marketing? Those are the three things that you're doing. Each tactic should be specific to accomplish one of those three goals, not often like mixed together. And then you need to measure appropriately for all three of those things so in demand creation not going to get measured by touchpoint attribution the engagement report that you get in whatever tool you're using is not going to effectively measure some of these things that typically happen in dark social scaled word of mouth content communities sharing internal things all that stuff isn't going to be measured we need new ways to measure that the companies don't have right now i've proposed a very simple solution using self-reported attribution on forms and asking how'd you hear about us inside of sales conversations and that you know, measurement method and category will continue to grow. Then you have demand capture, which you illustrated very good. It's not the only way to look at it, but it is a way to look at it is where are all the different lead sources. Let's categorize those into big buckets, like events, declared intent, low intent, things like that. And then look at the sales outcomes from them, which then allows us to understand what are the best sources to capture demand into pipeline that convert to revenue. And then on the pipeline acceleration standpoint, it's a little bit less straightforward because you're really looking for improvements in efficiency, win rates, sales cycles. Those are probably the two core, you know, you can try and say, you're going to try and get up deal size through cross sell, but really sales cycle and win rate are probably the primary drivers here. And for this thing, I actually believe that setting the pipeline acceleration strategy by the account tier would be the strongest move hey for every account that's tier one or tier two when they get to stage four we're sending direct mail and then do that for six months and then measure the direct you know we have a group of 500 accounts that didn't get direct mail at stage four and we had 500 that did get direct mail did it improve things and then over time like there'll be enough of a data set that gets collected and proposed that you could confidently say Send that direct mail at stage four because a bunch of companies have done it to a bunch of different buyers and have gotten this result. That's part of what we're trying to do here at my company is make manufacturing revenue a science just like that. Yeah. So, But breaking it by account here, maybe in the tier one, you get in a tier one account that's gonna pay you more, like two, 300 K or more that in stage four, stage five, you're doing an in-person meeting with that account. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of different, there's a lot of different tactics that you can deploy For certain accounts when the acv justifies it to accelerate to invest money to accelerate pipeline you wouldn't be doing those things for a 10k account and i think that doing pipeline acceleration campaigns even quote unquote air cover is not necessary and not cost effective for that you know that size of deal
1: yeah yeah and i really like how you detailed breaking out the campaign influence by stage not only just campaign influence on closed one deals it takes a little bit more work to get that going to report on it but if you have an ops team or a rev ops team it's certainly attainable and i think that would give you a much deeper insight into what's working and what's not and why to one defend marketing spend and spend smarter but then also i would think it would align way better or increase your alignment to the sales leaders and the sales team in general when you provide that level of insight because you're not necessarily taking credit or taking anything away from them, you're saying these things at these moments are going to help you close more deals, hence make more money for yourself Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's the goal of sales, right? So I really like that approach. And it's about selecting
0: programs and campaigns around an actual goal. Mm -hmm. You don't Mm -hmm. get this with multi-touch attribution. Like what's the goal in multi-touch attribution? It's to get a fucking touch on the account so we can say that we got one, right? In these moments, it's like we're trying to accelerate a close one deal and we're going to measure on win rates, or we're trying to get some an account or a set of accounts that wasn't interested in buying our stuff and hasn't been on our website for the past six months. And now those accounts are on our website and they're moving in market and they're showing intent. And now we can drive outbound cadences. We can run air cover. Maybe we do this like field event for accounts that are in market. It's just about having a purpose in your marketing. And at the moment, like, The purpose of a lot of marketing activities is to collect MQLs or to get an influence touchpoint. And I think it's seriously limiting to marketing and it's not helpful to businesses.
1: Yeah, you have to be careful for the self-fulfilled prophecies where like display ads is the worst of this. Well, we give display ads to everything that's in pipeline or late stage pipeline. Uh, Well, yeah, they're going to have a huge close rate because you did that for all the deals that are about to close. It's just like, <laughs> it's the display ad companies figure that one out where it's like, oh, well look at all these metrics. You can drop display Intent ads. Intent is it's the same way. every closed campaign. You could do that for any channel.
0: Intent is the same way. Like most of the stuff coming yep. out of ABM platforms is, hey, these accounts have been on your website or even these accounts have been on your pricing page. You should call them. Obviously you're <laughs> gonna be more like, if you don't call them in the next four days, they're gonna fill out your form on your website anyway. And so that, like intent data, has been a way to like try and intercept a buyer that's already going to buy and just get them on an outbound touch. I'm not saying it's not useful, but like there's a lot of vendors that have figured out how to put their product in the middle of a buyer that's going to buy anyway, and then say that that's the reason why they bought. Yep, the
1: hunters become the hunted in that scenario, and it'll only save you for so long until it doesn't. And your changes to your strategy aren't increasing results. Mm. When you go into a company, what are the things that you're still seeing most common as to what their problem actually is, despite what they think the problem is? Companies
0: don't have a holistic view of their go-to-market data and visibility and oftentimes don't prioritize solving it or even realize that what they're doing is not the optimal way. And so that's really the issue because the data is clear. And when I have do it over and over with companies, dozens, maybe 50 companies now, you analyze the data, you look at it a completely different way than they do it, you show them the results yeah. and they say, yeah, this is exactly what we thought was happening. We just didn't know how to do it. And then showing them this gives them a lot and then reforecasting. hey, if we like change this and we stop doing this, and then we, ha- yeah. we save the company this much money We'll focus here. We'll still hit our 55% growth target for next year. And we'll do it without getting 104,000 MQLs like the demand waterfall model says we need for next year. And so that's the missing piece is not having a holistic view of go to market and frankly, not prioritizing getting one. And so the main questions that CMOs and revenue executives and CEOs and CFOs are asking, they don't get the answer to is, is my marketing driving revenue? And if it is, what are the next opportunities for stepwise growth? And where are the places where I'm wasting money that we should stop spending? Those are very like topical and simple questions that people are asking that most marketing teams can't deliver the answer to right now. Another one would be, if we're going to make a million dollar bet next year, where are we going to put it? And a lot of companies don't know how to use data to figure that out. So it relies on what how we've been running go to market for since the beginning of time, which is based on experience and opinion, as opposed to science and data. And so I think that really is the core breakdown. People that work, executives that work in companies, are super smart people. If they had the data in front of them and it was available to them, they would see all the same things that I'm saying. And so it's not like they're like incompetent or missing things. It's that they don't recognize that this view exists and they haven't prioritized getting it. And like, there's a lot of competing things. Like I interact with companies that have 50 marketers and then they use influenced revenue model with a multi-touch attribution tool. What's every team trying to do? The SEO team, the content team, the brand team, the paid team, what are they all trying to do? They're all trying to get a trackable touch on every single account that they can, which is very different than driving an account to want to buy and so that's i think a lot of the and then yeah you get a lot of core breakdowns especially at the departmental level another thing that i think is super interesting is i mentioned this before i'm going to go in deeper into it like in our finance department when we look at our books the books are standardized there are procedures for how we manage them every company does it similarly to meet the standards when we compare public company against public company against their financials, we can look at it apples to apples. Now, when we look yeah. at our revenue data, every company does it differently. Some companies yeah. got some looker power BI fucking dashboard pulling in segment stuff and like a million different things. And it's all yeah. custom and it's data overflow and it's not needed. Other companies are trying to do it all, like pairing attribution tools into different things like that. Like, why isn't there a standard set of metrics? and a standard definition of how to measure those metrics and a standard way to actually collect and process the data so that if you had a PE firm, for instance, you invested in 200 companies, you can look at all their financials and you can see how those companies are doing. Why mm-hmm. couldn't you be able to look at their revenue data in the same way that you do a P&L and a balance sheet and draw similar conclusions around their go-to-market performance? That is needed. There is way too much, there's way too much manufacturing of data and insights to prove the ROI of things versus having an objective set of data that everyone agrees to. So I'm really trying to push the industry to get somewhere close to that because it's just so inconsistent and very inner company dependent.
1: Yeah, and the bigger the marketing department gets, the worse it gets to your point, being part of 20 person and 150 person marketing teams in my career Everyone's trying to get theirs. Everyone's trying to save their job and cover their ass and get their, get their more budget, job justified to get their money team, for their get budget. promoted. Yep. And it's a rift between the sales team or between the marketing team itself, rather. I've even seen a situation and lived it where you miss a number and then the next quarter everyone makes their number, but you end up wasting more money than you ever have before because more money gets spent in the marketing demand gen team to generate more leads, then the sales team is like, or the SDR team says, well, I need to qualify more of these. So I'm just gonna qualify them faster and looser. Also to hit my SLAs, I have to make it a looser qualification just to get through them, the whole slush of everything. And then those get passed on to sales. But you tell sales that they miss their number, they're gonna go right back to customer expansion, The deals that they were already working and spending more time on them and doing more of those best practices. And then also working their own pipeline from their own network, because those are going to close faster because of pre existing relationships. So everyone then hits their numbers the next quarter. And then you look six months down the road and you just literally threw away all of that effort that was probably too low of quality in the first place. And you're sitting there holding the bag. And if you've stayed throughout that whole time, maybe you don't have the numbers to show that you just wasted all that money but when you dive into it it's a disaster it's a complete shit show
0: yeah just wait until uh like you have your whole market you got your marketing annual planning meeting and you get presented the visible touchpoint reports that are trying to talk through where we should invest next year which is basically just looking back at what you did last year and adding 10% budget to every single item because they have no clue what's actually working or not not to mention that attribution tools, not just visible, but all of them that are based on digital touch points, significantly miss a lot of highly effective activities that are places where the budget typically gets cut. Meanwhile, all the things that can be measured appropriately, content syndication, lead gen, all these transactional digital activities, events even, mm-hmm. have clear data that they suck, and the ROI is bad <laughs> and nobody does anything with it. And meanwhile, they kill the podcast and LinkedIn because they can't measure it while they keep running and scaling shit they can measure that isn't
1: working. It is wild. Yep, yep, I hear you. And then numbers go down and they're like, why the hell are numbers down? I thought we cut the stuff that didn't work. It's like, no, display ads aren't the air cover. It's the content, the podcast, these things that didn't have the right attribution model to begin with that actually drove those demo request spikes that you were looking for
0: and it's not even that results have to go down to be clear what i typically see is that results flatline oh yeah when your marketing department is creating the same amount of pipeline for six quarters straight you have a problem if you're a growth company like marketing needs to deliver more pipeline or every quarter growing not just sitting there contributing two three million dollars in quarterly pipe every quarter that some of our customers start at one or two million in pipe a quarter And now they do 30 million three years later per quarter. And so like that's the type of growth that we're looking for. Even more so than that, not just flatlining, but in the 2020 to 2022 time, because of all of the organic market demand, low interest rates, companies were seeing pipeline growth while the marketing that they were doing and the investments they were making were totally ineffective. And then the market, the music stops on the market, the results drop off a cliff, And they're out there spending a million dollars on Google ads that don't work every month. And these are the scariest parts because what I've learned over the past four years of doing this, which I don't agree with, but it's what happens, is that companies come to me for a solution after demand is down, after they already have a problem, when things are going wrong and then they're calling me to come in and try and fix it, when the best time to hire me or someone like me is when things are going well and you're growing at 50 and you want to figure out how to push the needle to 75 yeah. percent and people don't think about marketing that way it's just it's not good we need to look at marketing as how do we keep making things that are working good and better and actually not just look at results but start to look down at the breakdown of how are we spending the money and which ones are actually working and the goal here how do we acquire more customers for less money
1: yeah and <laughs> I've banged my head against the wall and ran into brick walls trying to help the sales team get over the hump with coordination on a lot of this. And uh, I've actually seen and, and used companies like Refine Labs. You actually need, in many cases, a company like Refine Labs to come in and be that, you know, unbiased voice. That hey, we built the data. The marketing team didn't like skew the data. This is the truth, and this is a truth in which we need to follow in order to improve. And getting ahead of that little bit is huge, like you just said. But a lot of times if you're in a situation where you just can't get the change you need, I feel like bringing someone in is extremely beneficial and it's kind of like a gelling moment because everyone's in the battle together and not against each other. So when you do come in and, and run these projects, How often or how involved is the sales team when you work through these?
0: There's a couple other things that I wanna talk through real quick and then we'll get to the sales team involvement. So you mentioned unbiased voice. Like a lot of our large customers that work with us is like one of the main reasons that they keep working with us three or four years into it is because we're an objective third party, not trying to fudge the data for our own personal gain. Yep. And we look at things very differently. And people see it as risk mitigation and that type of stuff, which is a, a massive value for a company, you know, a thousand employees or something like that. Yep. When we think about transformation, this really boils into like two different areas. And I'm just going to focus on one for now. But the two areas are like, are you a small startup that has four people in marketing and a couple of sales reps trying to build your go-to-market from the ground up more or less? Or are you a big mature company or a growth company? That's you know doing fifty million ARR has forty sales reps, has a complex you know sp- already spends a lot of budget on marketing and things like that. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on that bucket for right now. In that bucket, typically the CM- in our engagements, the CMO is actually leading organizational change management there. So we may interface with cool. the sales leader and the CEO at times. But when it comes to actually like implementing those things, like a strong CMO gets those things done and doesn't need my help. And so that's who we strive to work with. Is there a lot of downstream organizational change in sales? For sure. Like if you cut 48,000 MQLs out of your model that you know you didn't win anyway, yeah. there is a lot of downstream implications to headcount planning, to efficiency, to workflows, yeah. to what should those people do instead. And so that right. stuff needs to be coordinated. Um. Another thing to note at a big company that the you should spend six to twelve months making this strategic change. Part of it is having a new data layer to make and inform good decisions. Which you want to start collecting data because you can't retroactively go back and make up data that wasn't collected in the first place. You want to start collecting data. You want to implement quick wins. You want to start change like leading organizational change, launching new programs, and then three to six months in, you actually have three to six months of historical standardized data that help you make much better decisions. And so, and also when you're talking about a mature company, like a mature company in the category that I'm talking about, doesn't need my help to figure out their ICP. Doesn't need my help to figure out how to message their product. They've sold it to a thousand customers and they're doing 50 million ARR. What they need is the framework to accelerate growth. And so I prefer to work with those companies because I don't like when there's a bunch of variables outside of my control. The variables that are outside of my control that I like the least, when the 2 million our company doesn't have product market fit and thinks that we're gonna help them and then scrutinizes the ROI in month three when they haven't sold a deal in those three months by themselves either. So I think just not having product marketing, product messaging and market traction is uh, you know, in, a variable that I don't like to play with. Having a like inconsistent sales performance and inconsistent marketing engine so far, like you don't get any inbounds from your website right now means it's like very immature and unproven or if your sales reps are losing every deal, most likely a symptom of an early stage company as well. Those are some of the, like in my seat, there's a customer that's clear that no matter what, we can provide massive value and extreme enterprise value, but they need to have these things in place. So I've started to really look and dial in on those things.
1: Yep, that's awesome. So in closing, I do want to ask you, who are some of the thought leaders that you turn to or you like to listen to spark new ideas or think of things differently?
0: So, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time like listening to like quote unquote thought leaders on like LinkedIn or content platforms, but I do get a lot of information from a lot of smart people and here's how I do it. One, I work with directly with some of the most talented CMOs that I've ever met that are working in the industry right now. Some of our most high profile customers, I work directly with them and I learn a ton of stuff about what they're doing, how they're thinking, how they're planning technology, what they're doing, and we learn together. And so there's a really interesting sort of thing there working directly with some of the smartest people that I've worked with. Additionally, there's a whole team at my company, 50 people that are working on like 35 B2B SaaS companies simultaneously right now yeah. that are out there tweaking and testing and finding micro innovation and getting insights and pulling data. And that becomes a really interesting feeder for insights. Um, and so instead of listening to a thought leader's opinion on LinkedIn, I'm focused on the companies where I can see their Salesforce data. Is the shit working or not? Yeah, Is the data telling me these things? And I think those just give me much more reliable, much more consistent, much more forward-thinking insights than listening to the person at HubSpot talking about their uh, SEO strategy. Yeah,
1: who might not actually be practicing what they're writing about in the first place. I kind of assumed it was going to be your customers and the projects you work on, and that exposes these trends and things that you talk about a lot. But yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us today, Chris. That was very insightful. I always love how you frame things and break it down and get into the weeds of the problems that we're all trying to solve and how to think about them differently and how to instigate change and evolution in what we're doing. So thank you for providing us that level of content. And uh, we hope to see you again.
0: Let's do it. Final parting words. You will not drive exponential growth using incremental process and tactics. In marketing over the past 10 years, since HubSpot and marketing automation platforms have been out, we have been in an incremental iterative optimization game for the past 10 years. That game is coming to an end. You need a different, an entirely different operating model to think through if you wanna get the growth that you're looking for. The incremental, at least in the past model is over.
1: Yep, very well said. If you want more content like this, this is automatically, right now, one of my favorite episodes that we've done. There's other great episodes that talk about all different topics. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or chronologic.com forward slash podcast. Where can we find more information from you, Chris? Yeah, you can check out my podcast,
0: the B2B Revenue Vitals Podcast on Apple and Spotify. You could also follow me on LinkedIn or any other platform. My handle is uh, ChrisWalker171.
1: Great. Thank you everyone for listening and thank you for joining us.
0: Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me.